Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. I believe that Jesus, if such a man ever lived at all, could be convicted of being a homosexual, Henry Gerber wrote to his friend Manuel in 1945. His question to Peter, thrice repeated, Do you love me? And leaning of John on his breast at the Last Supper, and his sleeping with twelve men in a park, would be evidence in any court to condemn him as a fairy. Welcome to Mattachine. If you haven't heard the previous two episodes of this program, I encourage you to go back. 
We are following the serialized story of gay liberation in 20th century America. It began with Henry Gerber, who wrote the letter I just read, and last week a secret society, Mattachine, was formed out of Harry Hay's clandestine discussion groups. As group attendance began to thrive, one of the co-founders, Dale Jennings, was arrested after passing through a park. Many cops call this type of arrest enticement, though the legal term is entrapment. Many gay men at the time are desperate for an opportunity to have sex and meet in dark parks or other public spaces to make it happen, especially if they are publicly passing as straight, perhaps with a wife at home. Cops catch on to this and not only arrest the men they catch having sex, but begin to target men they suspect are gay, either by luring them into something sexual or by simply accusing someone of doing something sexual because they appear to be gay. Dale Jennings was pursuing women for much of his life before the Mattachine. He was worried about being, in his words, tagged as a fag, and was married. But his marriage was annulled. He was a playwright and budding author, and before that, a violin prodigy who traveled the country performing. Dale produced and wrote about 60 plays for his traveling theater troupe in L.A. He was honorably discharged from the military with several medals in 1946. He studied cinema at the University of Southern California and even danced for the same troupe in which Harry met Rudy in our episode last week. Dale is smart and is enjoying a very full life with a clean record. But as he'll later write, in a situation where to be accused is to be guilty, a person's good name is worthless and meaningless. And like the other members of the Mattachine, he's not willing to live his life in the closet anymore, even when the city of Los Angeles puts him on trial this week on Mattachine. In the Mattachine, we are seeking acceptance of the homosexual in society. Societe Matachin were a group of masked men. No one ever knew who they were. We don't know anything about them. A homosexual is found everywhere. Every small community, every rural district throughout the country. A large city, New York, San Francisco. In every occupation in every city. And people had to come together in order to, to cooperate, in order to survive. It's a sense of a belonging. The sense of a being together. Which is so different from cruising. Public restrooms can often be a hangout for the homosexual. Experts in the field say that there are six million homosexual acts for every 20 arrests. Why are the laws in the book? They were adopted before we had any knowledge of the true fact. It is a great injustice to persecute homosexuality as a crime and a cruelty, too. They set themselves up as the fools who could speak out against oppression. The homosexuality survives by proselytizing. This could and if it's certain with the newspapers with the kinds of activities that you're undertaking. Whether we approve of his type of conduct or not, the fact is he is in our midst and in large numbers. If we slip now, it could set everything back 20 or 30 years, you see. Everybody said that gays would not fight back. Mattachine is a podcast dedicated to exploring the overlooked, forgotten, or often untold stories in gay history. I'm Devlin Camp. Spring, 1952, Los Angeles. Dale is out looking for a movie to see and stops off in a restroom in Westlake Park where a guy happens to be cruising. Dale isn't interested and goes on his way. The rest of his story follows in Dale's own words. I felt followed by a big, rough-looking character who appeared out of nowhere. He caught up with me, struck up a one-sided conversation, walked to the third movie, which I'd already seen, darn it, and then followed me over a mile home. Thinking he had robbery in mind, I walked fast, took detours, and said goodbye at each corner. 
Arriving home and in front of a witness, I said another goodbye and unlocked the door. He pushed on by and entered uninvited. Harry Hayes' memory of the story includes that the man asks for coffee, and when Dale goes for it, he sees the man moving the window blind as if signaling someone. Dale goes on. What followed would have been a nightmare even if he hadn't turned out to be Vice Squad. Sure, now that this big character was a thug, I, as the prosecutor described it, flitted wildly from room to room, wondering how to get rid of this person sprawled on the divan making sexual gestures and proposals. I was almost relieved when he strolled into the back bedroom because I could now call the police. Then he called twice, Come in here! His voice was loud and commanding. He'd taken his jacket off, was sprawled on the bed, and his shirt was unbuttoned halfway down. Then he slapped the bed and said, Sit down. Now he insisted that I was homosexual and urged me to let down my hair. He'd been in the Navy and all us guys played around. I told him repeatedly that he had the wrong guy. He got angrier each time I said it. At last he grabbed my hand and tried to force it down the front of his trousers. I jumped up in a way. Then there was the badge and he was snapping the handcuffs on me with the remark, Maybe you'll talk better with my partner outside. The officer walks Dale all the way back to the park, cuffed. He sits in the back of the car on a dark street for almost an hour while three officers question him. The arresting officer sits with him in the back seat. The cops laugh a lot. The officers crack jokes and chat, then silence falls. And one suddenly asks, How long have you been this way? Dale refuses to answer. He's terrified. Then they laugh and suddenly ask another question. The driver starts the car and Dale fears the beating that he's sure is coming. The beating's out in the countryside he's heard about. The cops drive over a mile past the Lincoln Heights suburb. They make jokes about police brutality, trying to scare him. They all tell him to plead guilty and everything will be fine. Slowly, they double back to the station. That first officer had approached Dale at 8.55 in the park. Dale is booked at the station at 11.30 p.m. He can't make his phone call until nearly 3 a.m. Harry Hay answers the phone and he's at the jail at 6.30 a.m. to post the $50 bail. He takes Dale to breakfast at the Brown Derby, where Dale tells him the entire story. He doesn't know what to do, because most homosexuals don't contest charges in an open court. It would have exposed their secret to the public. Dale would lose his job and face a lifetime of social stigma. And aside from all that, Dale's worried he'd be convicted as a felon, even though he didn't actually do anything wrong. Harry calls an emergency Mattachine meeting at Dale's apartment. He sees this as the moment the Mattachine has been waiting for, to expose the police for entrapment tactics against homosexuals. Dale agrees and decides he's willing to expose the police at the risk of ruining his own reputation. And so the Fifth Order of the Mattachine agrees to help their co-founder contest the charge. The Foundation leaders of the Mattachine, Harry, Rudy, Chuck, Bob, Dale, Conrad, and James, otherwise known as the Fifth Order, they hire a lawyer. Dale will need a lawyer because the alternative is a public defender, which likely means a guilty verdict, which means paying a fine or staying in jail. George Shibley had fought for racial minority rights, though he doesn't know gay life very well as a heterosexual, but he takes the case anyway. And rather than putting the Mattachine name on the line so early in its infancy, their lawyer, Shibley, advises the Fifth Order to create a committee to fight openly for Dale. They agree, it's a great idea. They call it the Citizens' Committee to Outlaw Entrapment. And they use the committee to spread the word and raise funds for Dale's case. Getting word out about the case is crucial to the Mattachine's mission to call on all homosexuals to come together. 
So the money they raise will not only support the case in court, but they also want it to fund press releases and letters to radio and television stations to tell people about the injustice this committee is fighting for Dale. But after the letters are sent out, Harry and the Mattachine hear nothing on the radio, see nothing on television. The media doesn't care to report on this event. So the Fifth Order makes flyers. They drive around the city of L.A. and disperse them through the gay community. They stop at Santa Monica gay beaches again and L.A. bars. They post flyers up in bathroom cruising spots and bus stops and park benches. They ask gay shop owners in West Hollywood to pass them out. Some supermarket clerks drop the flyers into bags of their gay customers. A gay man will arrive home to unpack his groceries and find it, discovering a committee fighting. Blackmail, intimidations, shakedown, entrapment, search and seizure without warrant, incarceration without charge for homosexuals and the community in general. All of a sudden, in the discussion groups, it seems Dale's case is all anyone can talk about. Many of these discussion group guests assume that if Dale was arrested, he was guilty of having sex in the park, like so many of them. Some of them believe this from experience or hearsay, but some of them know better that police did entrap him with no valid reason to, because they had experienced it too. Dale writes, To be innocent, and yet not able to convince even your own firm constituents, carries a particular agony. The First Order discussion leaders argue that even if Dale is guilty, which he isn't, the law needs to be questioned and abusive police tactics need to be stopped. Soon, the entire Mattachine supports Dale. They begin to chip into the cause, sending money to the committee to outlaw entrapment, to pay the lawyer and print the flyers and spread the word that a person is on trial simply for being a homosexual. The flyers are printed off. Now is the time to fight, they proclaim. This is an anonymous call to arms. Now is the time to reveal the full threat to the entire community of the special police brutality against the homosexual minority. The issue is civil rights. They invite the public and the media to attend the trial. This is an anonymous body of angry voters in full sympathy with the spirit of rebellion in our community concerning police brutality. If the homosexual does not have equal citizenship guarantees, privileges, and dignities under the law, then neither do you. To tacitly assume that the homosexual is simultaneously a lewd and dissolute person is tantamount to declaring that all Jews are swindlers, that all Mexicans are dirty, that all Negroes are bestial. Once the community has suffered a political machine to oppress a whole minority in the guise of protecting said community from a manufactured stereotype, then all the hateful and evil minority stereotypes are once here on the way to being re-established with all the attendant phobias and mob violence. This flyer doesn't actually mention Dale's arrest at all but everyone knows what the committee is talking about. And the flyer is signed, Miss Jean Dempsey, Treasurer. There is, of course, no Jean Dempsey. The Committee to Outlaw Entrapment is flooded with mail and money for the legal fees. They receive requests for information about what else can be done. Soon the committee announces a partnership with the Mattachine, keeping up the appearance that they aren't already the Mattachine, But now the Fifth Order is ready to put the Mattachine organization's name out in public on a successful mission. Since we last communicated with you, we have become affiliated with the Mattachine Foundation, a non-profit corporation interested in the problems of sexual variance. We are most grateful that the Mattachine Foundation has been sufficiently impressed with our sincerity to offer us the assistance of its administrative security. Members of the First Order discussion groups, the bottom level of the Mattachine's hierarchy, begin to wonder where exactly all this money sent to the committee is going, and if it is going entirely to Dale's case. Instead of going to that committee's work for the case, is it now going to the Mattachine? 
Members like Kenneth Burns begin to question the committee's process. No, not the filmmaker Ken Burns. Kenneth is beginning to wonder who the people in the Fifth Order are. Discussion group members have heard of the Mattachine Foundation, another name for the Fifth Order, and that they are supporting and protecting these discussion groups. But because the Foundation has intentionally organized the society into cells of anonymity for their own protection, the members don't know exactly who is leading them. And that's all well and good when you consider safety. But when people are asked for money, they become more concerned with what's going on behind the curtain. From May 3rd, 1952 to January 31st, 1953, the Mattachine Foundation receives $1,217.37 to use for Dale's trial, which is equal to a little over $11,000 now. Quite a bounty. They use almost all of it by the end of January 53. June 23rd, 1952. The People vs. William Dale Jennings begins and lasts for 10 days. No media attends the trial. There's no hubbub in the press about the trial, as the Mattachine hoped to see. But Dale takes the stand and denies the accusations of wrongdoings while publicly admitting to being a homosexual. This is completely unheard of. The lawyer Shibley announces, the only pervert in this courtroom is the arresting officer. Dale will later write, even if I had done all the things which the prosecution claimed, I would have been guilty of no unusual act only an illegal one in this society. The verdict, perhaps surprisingly, comes down 11 to 1 for acquittal. The final vote holds out for a juror who will not change his mind in Dale's favor, in his words, until hell freezes over. Another trial is scheduled, but five days before, the district attorney dismisses the case. The charges are dropped, and Dale Jennings is free. Victory, the Mattachine Citizens Committee announces through a new flyer. You didn't see it in the papers, but it could and did happen in L.A. In a victory unique for California, Dale Jennings defended himself against entrapment by the L.A. police and won. This is the first time in California history an admitted homosexual was freed on a vague lewd charge. It was the result of organized work and people who believe in justice for the homosexual. We urge you to give now to eliminate gangster methods by the police. A contribution now may save you thousands if you become the next target of entrapment. This is a great victory for the homosexual minority. Dale will later write, A bond of brotherhood is not mere blind generosity. It is unification for self-protection. Dale becomes something of a Rosa Parks for the gay rights movement. Mattachine membership spikes. Records aren't preserved, but historians estimate First Order discussion group attendance of 2,000 to 5,000 all over California. New groups appear and are flooded with attendees. Discussion groups similar to the Mattachine spring up in Laguna, Long Beach, and Fresno. Chuck later recalled, Mattachine really took off. From the months when we had nothing, we moved into a broad, sunlit upland filled with whole legions of eager gays. Mattachine was suddenly in. No combination of people in our limited leadership could handle them. Groups have 15 to 20 members, and then the same amount of newcomers show up. The groups break into smaller groups, and then those double too. In 1953, a network forms all over Southern California, spreading from San Diego to Santa Monica, out to San Bernardino, up to San Francisco, Berkeley, and then even all the way out to Chicago. The influx of members brings in key players to the future of the movement, such as Jim Kepner and Dor Legg. As their secret society grows, the Fifth Order carries on Harry's call to action. They write and send questionnaires to Los Angeles candidates for election. 
They ask Board of Education candidates if they support a nonpartisan psychomedical presentation of homosexuality in required hygiene classes for high school seniors, and if they are in favor of a guidance program for young people starting to manifest subconscious aspects of social variance. In short, do they think gay kids are sick, and are they willing to teach them how to accept their homosexuality? They also ask candidates for their stance on LA Vice Squad behavior. Few candidates respond. The mission is moving full steam ahead. Until Harry Hay is named publicly in a Los Angeles newspaper as a teacher of Marxist principles at the labor school for the Communist Party. Shortly after, a copy of that questionnaire about gay kids in school sent to local candidates for office winds up at the L.A. Daily Mirror. The paper publishes a story on the Mattachine. It's the first time that a newspaper uses the word homosexual. The writer, Paul Coates, calls them a strange new pressure group claiming to represent the homosexual voters of Los Angeles, vigorously shopping for campaign promises. He also reports on their new legal advisor, Fred Snyder, as an unfriendly witness at the House Un-American Activities Committee here. The reporter goes on to say, It is not inconceivable that homosexuals, scorned by society, might band together for their own protection. Eventually, they might swing tremendous political power. A well-trained subversive could move in and forge that power into a dangerous political weapon. Implying that a group of homosexuals could be so weak as to be overtaken by one communist. He continues, To damn this organization before its aim and directions are more clearly established would be vicious and irresponsible. Maybe the people who founded it are sincere. It would be interesting to see. Rumors of subversive influence and Mattachine leadership are already running around discussion groups, as no one in the society knows who is running it. It's becoming clear to attendees that with the anonymous committee for Dale's trial, the anonymous leadership of Mattachine, and the branching off of discussion groups seemingly led by no one, this movement is shaped a lot like the Communist Party. Harry, Chuck, and Bob were, of course, involved in the Communist Party. Dale wasn't, but is certainly now a fellow traveler, even later referring to himself as the local red cell. And Dale's lawyer, George Shibley, will later be called before HUAC. Members are getting fed up with shady communist implications. Many are tired of sitting around at the same meetings listening to others go on about how difficult it is to be a homosexual. They're ready to move on to bigger goals. October 1952, four months after Dale's trial. A bookshop on Hollywood Boulevard run by Martin Block, who Rudy had recruited into the Mattachine by dropping off a copy of The Call. About 70 people get together in there, most of them from Mattachine discussion groups. Dale Jennings and Chuck Rowland from the Mattachine Foundation are there, though of course most people don't know that they are the foundation. Some people are voicing their concerns with Mattachine. A former police officer speaks up about the tactics cops use to entrap homosexuals. One of the fairly new members, Dor Leg, will later recall, We were just in a fury and everyone began sputtering. People don't know these things. We've got to tell them. Up squeaks this little pipsqueak. Well, you need a magazine. It was just like a match to gasoline. That's just one of the stories about the creation of one magazine. That's the word one in all caps. One magazine. Many other stories circulate the history books about One Magazine's creation, some saying that Dale Jennings first suggested the magazine. 
Martin Block recalls the idea came from a meeting hosted by a man named Johnny Button in the West Hollywood area, in which Button suggested the magazine. Other people remember different tales of one magazine's creation. In any case, Guy Rousseau, a young black member of a discussion group, suggests the name One for the magazine from a quote by Scottish philosopher Thomas Carlyle. A mystic bond of brotherhood makes all men one. Jim Kepner explains that the title is also an in-joke. There's this war joke about an army sergeant teaching a group of rookies to count off by number, and the sergeant comes to someone who didn't speak up. The sergeant barks, Hey, you! Ain't you one? And the recruit says, Yes, are you one? Saying he's one is common jargon, meaning he's gay. One magazine will become a nonprofit corporation for education, social service, publicity, and research. They all agree that the magazine won't be mimeographed, it will be printed. Essays, poetry, scientific articles, original fiction, reprints from classics. One magazine finds an office at 232 South Hill Street in LA, not far from where Harry met Champ in Pershing Square in our episode one, and coincidentally, the same building where Harry once taught his classes for the Communist Party in episode two. One magazine immediately hires an attorney, the same one named in Paul Coates' column, Eric Julber, and they sign Articles of Incorporation on November 15th, 1952, within a month of the idea's conception. It happens very fast. Mattachine co-founder Dale teaches everyone how to set the type and make a magazine. Co-founder Chuck also has a part in the magazine's creation, and so does the bookshop owner Martin Block, serving as editor. The magazine also has more women involved than Mattachine does, including Eve Ellery and Anne Carl Reed, both of whom will soon rise up in the magazine. Much of the first issue is written by Dale Jennings under the pen name Jeff Winters. They print one magazine in Dale's sister's basement, stack them up, and distribute them through the bars and streets of L.A. just two months later, January 1953. Dale debuts the publication by telling the story of his own entrapment, and most of his quotes I've used in this episode come from that issue. The first issue of One has a gray cover with the headline in purple lettering, To be accused is to be guilty. Report to the California State Legislature. It costs 20 cents. Letters to the editor prove that the first issue finds its way to gay people all over the country, so it makes sense that it eventually finds its way to the FBI. The issues have Dale's reflections on his trial, fiction, news, essays, information on paragraph 175 in Germany, politics and the state's study of sexual deviance, and even a report on the Mattachine Foundation written by Hieronymus K, a.k.a. Dale Jennings. Dale is able to focus in on controversial issues like police entrapment, confusion between homosexuality and communism, effeminacy and homosexuals, religion, and even gay marriage. The staff also debates whether to allow sexually explicit material in this magazine, because through one, Dale is able to be less cautious than the Mattachine. They ultimately keep it pretty clean to present it in a professional light. And its following is big. They're publishing three to 5,000 copies of this per month, printing them all off in Dale's sister's basement. This is the appeal of branching out from the Mattachine Foundation, because Harry and Dale begin to disagree often. From the beginning, on that hillside by Harry's house... Comes running through my driveway and he's waving me with perspectives in his hand, kind of blowing out like a flag. He said, I could have written myself, what do we begin? <laughs> so he said, uh, yeah. 
the foundation had agreed to pursue liberation by determining that the gay community was a cultural minority. But Dale is beginning to believe that homosexuals are all the same as heterosexual people, aside from who they go to bed with. Dale wants the right to be left alone. Harry wants visibility. One's articles are able to discuss both sides. Will they achieve equal rights by gaining them in the existing society, or change society itself to match their own beliefs? Is homosexuality a behavior, or is it a minority of people? Is the organization democratic or anonymous? Is gayness explained through literature and history, or simply science? Essentially, are we our own culture, or do we assimilate to heterosexual culture? One historian wrote that Harry Hay believed that gays were a unique and especially talented folk who had been an integral part of tribal societies and needed to unify to reclaim those sacred and traditional roles. Harry wasn't the first person to say this. Carl Ulrichs wrote it in the 1860s. He called us Uranians in his essays titled Studies on the Riddle of Male-Male Love. Ulrichs compared homosexuals to the spiritual epithet Aphrodite Urania, who is a celestial love of body and soul, born solely from a man a female physique born from a male body. So not only do this 19th century writer Carl Ulrichs and Mattachine leader Carrie Hay recognize the femininity of homosexual men, they also recognize queerness as something that brings special abilities with it. And they're not alone in thinking this. It has long been believed for centuries that queer people are on a higher, wiser spiritual plane because of their sexuality, gender expression, and identity. Another term used often to group these queer people was third sex. And there's the theory of the Old English word fagare, leading to both the words fairy and faggot. This concept is also shown in many indigenous North American communities through the two-spirit, formerly referred to as burdash, which deserves an explanation that goes beyond sexuality and gender identity, so let's put a pin on that for another day. The point is, Harry is correct, but so is Dale. There are queer people who consider their experience to be just like everyone else's, aside from who they take to bed. And because they are all finally moving out of the closet and forming their own ideas, the gay liberation movement begins to splinter in different directions. Under the name Jeff Winters, Dale angrily writes in one magazine, full disclosure, not fully understanding what it means to be transgender, Dale writes, Homosexuals are not a third sex. Personalities in the body of the wrong sex, biological confusions of nature. Most neurotic symptoms they display, and there are plenty, can just as easily have been caused by society refusing to adjust to them as the reverse. Their vast number in both history and present makes it impossible to label them as freaks and so unusual as to be called abnormal. Basically, we've always been here. We're normal. We're like everyone else. Dale also believes the homophile movement that he is taking part in leading is a paradox. Standing up and protecting homosexuals means bringing out those who stand against them. He is correct again. Informants are in their meetings. The FBI receives that Paul Coates article in the Daily Mirror about a strange new pressure group claiming to represent the homosexual voters of Los Angeles. Issues of one magazine are handed into J. Edgar Hoover, the first director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The FBI begins surveillance of the Mattachine and one magazine. And soon, two agents will be on Chuck and Bob's front doorstep. Next week on Mattachine. Stay tuned for a preview of next week's special episode. Mattachine was created and hosted by me, Devlin Camp.
Please share the show with your friends, whether they're gay, straight, asexual, or anywhere on the Kinsey scale. If you're enjoying the show so far, please rate and review it on iTunes. That's a free way for you to help us expand our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mattachine Files. I share visual stuff that I'm not able to use on the podcast. Our editorial advisor is the constantly brilliant Paul DeCicio. And thanks to Albert Williams for always picking up the phone and answering my questions. Chuck Rowland was voiced by Nathan Cooper. Much more from him coming up soon. Intent. Paul Coates was voiced by Garrett Williams. You can find the sources for our show on our website, mattachinepod.com, along with other things I didn't have time to include today. And if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on our website, too. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo and audio clips of Harry Hay are courtesy of One Archives at the USC Libraries. If you'd like to learn more about One Magazine and the One Archives in Los Angeles, we've got links to them on our website, mattachinepod.com, along with many of those resources. Audio clips from The Rejected, the first American documentary on homosexuality, are licensed by 13 Productions and WNET. The music for this episode with the song Shamanistic, Moncoto, Echoes of Time, Dark Walk, On the Ground, Opportunity Walks, Not As It Seems, Groove Grove, Finding the Balance, and The Complex, all by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Shout out to our new Patreon donors. David, Carl, Michael, and Giannis are getting private perks like photos through the research process, PDF transcripts of episodes, and soon, little bonus episodes. If you'd like to contribute to the production of this show, you can check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash files and contribute as little as a dollar per episode. The money goes to fund the aforementioned permissions and licenses for this show. And if you're a school teacher, contact me on mattachinepod.com and you will receive free transcripts of every single episode free of charge. Feel free to teach your students all the queer history you can get your hands on. Thanks for listening. Here's what's coming. Next week on Mattachine. Hundreds of communists and sexual perverts have been kicked out of federal jobs. This is a story in which only accusers and the hunters get their names printed in the papers. Exiles and criminals. We're being thrown out of the State Department. The policy of the department is that we do not employ homosexuals, and that if we discover homosexuals in our department, we discharge them. His parents don't know it. His neighbors don't know it. His fellow workers don't know it. And we were a criminal act. Subject to blackmail. Mattachine members believe the FBI will eventually investigate them. I, I didn't have no way of knowing what the FBI knew and didn't know. In a department handling defense secrets, moral perverts are a security risk. Uh, how many people have been removed due to the McCarran writer? The hunted remain anonymous. Unspecified, uncounted, nameless men. Everybody said that gays would not fight back. <laughs>